Walt Disney. Yes. Beloved, beloved figure of our of our pop culture. That's how they get you. Yada yada yada. She eventually causes her own husband to be burned to death. And that makes me so happy on cold nights. It especially ended badly for the idiot Peckerwoods. Have a bottle oh, of wow. scotch. Okay, that's twice that he's mentioned redheads. <laughs> it is un-American to get in the way of our freedom to restrict people's freedoms. That was the point. Okay. Title. Yeah. Okay. But, I know plenty about but, these things. But, I love me some Bobby Drake. Yeah, well, yeah, if that's flame, all we've got, then we're darts. being really lazy. Yeah. <laughs> Y'all bone. You can literally poke a hole in it as soon as someone gets pneumonia. Well, I'm yeah, not as old as you. Well, haha, motherfucker, I got a wizard. of time where we connect nerdery to the real world my name is ed blaylock i'm a world history teacher currently uh via distance here in northern california um <clears throat> still trying to figure out what to do with one random section of english in the middle of all that uh and uh just recently my son has decided uh that uh dragons can be found in various parts of our apartment complex uh, parking lot, uh, which is awesome because it takes me to my happy place when he wants to go chase him. On the other hand, when I'm trying to get him in the car to go to daycare in the morning, it can be a little bit problematic. Can you guys hunt you? dragons on the way? Because I used to turn the... Uh, my, my minivan is called the Millennium Falcon. And if I open up nice. the sunroof, that's the, uh, the dorsal cannon. And oh, my nice. son will, and I will just turn on the uh, the soundtrack, and we yeah. will we we fought so many Tie Fighters on the way, uh, nice. for so long. So just just an idea. Turn okay, your gonna, gonna car. give that gonna yeah. give that gonna give that a try. Turn it into so, like a, a, a seat like a cool thing. Like oh, did you get that dragon? Because there's dragons down the street, and we need to fight in our dragon wagon. Kids go Dragon crazy. Wagon, I yeah. like that. Nice. Kids go crazy right. for rhymes. So okay. Uh, I'm Damien Harmony. I give out unsolicited advice. Uh, I'm all the time. Yes, true. I do it professionally as a teacher and as a stand-up comic. <laughs> uh, so it's what we do. It uh, kind of yeah, it really is. I have one friend who's a comic. His name is Keith Lowell Jensen, um, and he doesn't know I'm plugging him on here. Uh, but he says that he writes uh, autobiographical fan fiction. Uh, that's perfect which, oh it's so like good that. uh but yes i am a stand-up comic i'm also a uh a latin teacher with one rogue section of world history um trying to do this distance learning uh ap tests have come up so kids have completely fallen away because uh, i'm a high school teacher um and uh it's it's a whole mess i don't i don't i've, I've put all the lessons online i'm hoping they're doing them some of them send stuff back um, I have literally one student from my world history class who's still in contact. I think all the rest have given up. Um, they might never know how World War One ended, and uh, you know that's the sad irony. But do but, any of us really know, though? No. I mean, I had a joke like on World War on an I? existential level. <laughs> oh yeah, no, that you're never going to get to tell. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm 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 in this place where. Like I had such plans this year mm -hmm. for the Reformation, mm. and <clears throat> like there's not even any chance I'm gonna get to it oh, online. God. No. Like like I'm I'm going to get one week of talking about Japan, mm -hmm. 
which which is not enough. Uh, okay. You, so so those of you who are tuning into the podcast for the first time, uh, this is going to be news. Everybody else is going to be like, well, yeah, okay, right. Yeah, we know. This is it. <laughs> um, but but the the secondary area of specialty for my for my history degree was East Asia, focusing primarily on Japan, right? China being in there. And and that's because I was exposed to samurai movies at too young an age and it mm-hmm. warped my brain. And so like I could spend a semester talking about uh, the Sengoku Jidai and the Heian period before mm-hmm. it and and the Muromachi period. And, was the Heian you know, period when they were ruled speak. by an outcast? Nice. Thank you. Nice. Uh, the time, time champ is four minutes. Okay. Yeah. All right. You're you're getting. I realized we, why we I stopped punning for our show, and it's because why? right before this, I do a digital pun tournament show on Twitch yeah, TV forward slash Capital Puns. So I'm like all punned out, but tonight I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, good. Yeah. And you even had a Japan round on the show tonight. We did. So we did. that was so fun. You know. So you were you were already kind of locked and loaded for that one. Oh yeah. Um, but you know, and and so and I I could spend I could spend a semester talking about this, mm-hmm. and I have to cram all of Japanese history up to the Heian period into like an afternoon. Wow. And then I get to spend two or three days talking about Heian Kyo and and Japanese you know cultural development during that period. Mm-hmm. And then I have to spend a day taking everything from the Heian period to the Tokugawa shogunate, which is, call it 400 years. Right. Of, of internecine warfare, the rise and fall of daimyo, like, mm-hmm. as a thing. Um, and, and, like, one of the most pivotal uh, periods of Japanese history uh, to to the development of, of modern Japan's kind of character, right? Uh, um, you know, has to get kind of you know spoken in a couple of sentences as well. You know, there was this period of civil war when lords fought against lords. Okay, there's so much more to that than that, but <laughs> here yeah. we are. Yeah, you know, and and so normally I get to spend, I wind up spending like two weeks on Japan. Nice, and I and I weep every year because, because that's too short. It's, it's, it's way too short. Yeah. And so now I'm going to get one. And then I'm going to have to pick whether it's going to be the scientific revolution, the reformation, or pre-Columbian America. May I for give the you... For like week or two weeks. May... And I'm leaning, I'm leaning hard in the direction of pre-Columbian America. Good, good. And because... let me tell you why I support that. Okay. Uh, because we cover the scientific revolution in 10th grade. Uh, we cover the Reformation in 10th grade, um, which I, I don't get why. There's so much more other stuff that's happening. But, but you know, do you it, put Pope Leo on trial in the 10th grade? No, no. Because uh, you should. Uh, well, yeah, but, yeah. But I mean, no, we, we don't. Uh, but, you know, it's it's there's a lot of focus on the splitting of the Christian church and then the counter-Reformation uh, and... And all that kind of stuff, and then you know Cardinal uh, Richelieu and and all that kind of stuff. 
as as it pertains toward the French Revolution. I mean, that's where it's really uh, done. Yeah, right. But pre-Columbian yeah. uh, South America uh, doesn't get touched until we get to. Uh, well, it, it doesn't get touched because um, we don't get to South America in the 10th grade until we get to the post-Napoleonic time. So, yeah, I was going to say. So yeah. that's that's yeah, it's really just a tour of Western Civ and all these places that the Europeans beat up. So, yeah, well, pretty much. Um, but we've yeah. relaxed on our content standards somewhat. So, uh, again, hit them with that stuff so that they can because uh, yeah. you've got kids who are uh, presumably from Central and South American heritage. They'll get to learn about something that they can actually literally relate to. Um, yeah so geographically well, it works better and, too and yeah and and if they go into the eighth grade understanding that you know before europeans showed up um native american societies were literally 10 times as large yes as they were by the time the pilgrims showed up yeah yeah like like tenochtitlan tenochtitlan yeah um, had a population comparable to Rome. Yes. In in the in in the in the Republican period, mm-hmm. um, and had aqueducts feeding it. Mm-hmm. Had a sophisticated system of of you know fields and agriculture and everything to, oh, yeah. to feed everybody living there. I mean, it was it was this incredibly cosmopolitan place, mm-hmm. and it was all built without iron tools. Yeah. Yeah, like they did. They they accomplished an awful lot of what the Romans accomplished. Not mm-hmm. everything the Romans accomplished, but they accomplished darn near all of it. Right. And they did it with stone fucking tools. And yeah. and to the Euro to the Europeans who showed up at that time, it was like, well, look at these barbarians. They don't even have metal. It's like they don't have metal, and they built all that. Yeah. Apparently, they don't need the metal. Like, so apparently, they don't need it. Yeah. So, so yeah, my yeah. kids won't know yeah. how World War One ended ever, um, because I assume that they'll never learn it ever, uh, and uh, and and your kids are going to not know that the church had a Reformation uh, ever. So well, uh, okay, that's, no, the church that's distance no, learning. Yeah, but no, the church didn't have a Reformation. Christianity had a Reformation oh, yeah. that led to a whole bunch of churches. But yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm nitpicking. I was thinking about the Counter Reformation, but oh well, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> the rubber band snapping back. So, yeah, yeah, pretty much. So, all right. So now, now that we've, you know, spent all of this time segueing and into all of that. Sure. Um, we, we were having a conversation earlier today, mm-hmm. uh, in, in which, uh, you, you mentioned, um, a couple of, a couple of political figures uh-huh. from, from the eighties and, and nine and 1990s. Yes. And I know that we're going to be tying that in with your absolute favorite medium of, of nerdery. Yes. And, and so I'm going to ask you to start right now. And I don't know if this is how your notes are all form formulated, but, but I want to hear what is the thesis statement for what we're going to be talking about tonight. Well, the thesis is actually in the title. It's like an 1800s book. Uh, the NWO storyline in WCW was a reflection of the South's hatred of Bill Clinton. Fuck yes. <laughs> I am here for it. Okay. All right. Now, but, yeah. but hold on. Uncle Billy was was 
was a was an avuncular, you know, jovial good old boy, wasn't he? He was. Uh, the problem with it was, well, it'll you'll see it come out, but okay. there were a few things that happened in the early '90s that set the tone for the election in '96, which then set the tone for the NWO storyline. What I'm talking about with the NWO storyline is a very small slice, but a very loud slice of wrestling's history. Um, if I mention the name Stone Cold Steve Austin to you, you'd recognize that, right? Oh, hell yeah. There you go. Nicely yeah. done. Can I get a hell yeah? <laughs> oh, hell yeah. Uh, and, and here's and here's the thing. Part mm-hmm. of the reason I remember that quote mm-hmm. has less to do with Steve Austin mm-hmm. and has more to do with Farscape. Okay. Because John Crichton, mm-hmm. in, a, in a memorable moment, uh, uh, wrestling with with the demons inside his own head, mm-hmm. both metaphysically and on screen, literally, uh, uh, winds up throwing um, one of them into a dumpster and then shouting, can I get a hell yeah? <laughs> and so, yeah. Yeah, and no, that, it, and that and that that became that became a tagline within the fandom too, right. which was taken directly from. Oh yeah, yeah. It um and and if I said uh, what's your name and then you told me and I said it doesn't matter what your name is. It doesn't matter what your name right. is. So well, yeah. All that, all that, as memorable as it is, only happened in about a three-year period. Wow. Yeah. Uh, the the amount of memory people have. And to give you some idea, um, a three-year period is less than the total reign of Hulk Hogan's first uh, shot at being champion. Like Really? Yeah. He held, the, he held the belt longer than that? Oh, yeah. He, he held the belt. Hulkamania happened in 84, and he held it until... 80, let's see, 87, he wrestled Andre, and then they had the thing, and that was in the summer, so to 87, yeah. So he had the belt, uh, yeah, for four years, um, almost almost exactly. I could probably find out oh, uh, precisely. Yeah. But yeah, uh, right. and, and then he held it again uh, for another year, uh, uh, a little while after that. But, but my point is, is that more that um, this period of time that we know about uh, from wrestling... Uh, it fits within a context that's only, uh, honestly, only from 96 to 99. I mean, it really is. So it's, 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 it burned so white hot, um, that, yeah. That was that long ago? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Like the mullets were still a thing. Uh, so... Uh, so in May of 1996, I'm going to start there, but I'm okay. going to come back. Okay? okay. In May of 1996, uh, Vince McMahon um, and two different wrestlers could not come to terms uh, on um, uh, on a contract renewal. Okay. So uh, Scott Hall, uh, do you know that name at all? I, I recognize it from from other stuff we've talked about. Okay. So Scott Hall was uh, a pro wrestler who had been an upper mid-card guy in the AWA. The AWA was a Minneapolis-based wrestling alliance. It was one of the first offshoots of the NWA that really made it big. It was Vern Gagne's uh, wrestling federation. Um, And he had... It was a star factory. Like, he made amazing stars come out of there. But very often, he would... 
I don't want to say he held them down, but he had this kind of traditional way of doing things. Uh, and and as wrestling was exploding, his territory kept getting raided by McMahon. So Scott Hall had been an upper mid-card guy in the AWA uh, as Big Scott Hall. Um, and he floundered elsewhere and finally found a character that worked for him in the 1990s. You might know this name, Razor Ramon. Oh, yeah. Okay. That was Scott Hall. He was not, in fact, Cuban. <laughs> uh, so um, he was essentially a Tony Montana ripoff. Uh, he wrestled in the main event many a time. He held the Intercontinental Belt, which is the second highest belt in the WWF at the time. And I'll be talking about the WWF mostly because that's what it was at the time. Yeah. Um, but he held the Intercontinental Belt a few times. He was known as an excellent worker. And a worker is somebody who can make their opponent look really, really good. So he was good at okay. doing that. And uh, yeah. Just out of curiosity, what sure. was his reputation as a shooter? Didn't have one. Um, okay. Yeah. He, uh, by this point, shooters are pretty much gone. Uh, if you're a shooter, you're probably going to be in the Southern Wrestling Leagues. Uh, okay. And, and yeah. And, and you're going over to Japan a lot. Um, at okay. this point, it's <laughs> it's been cartoonized so much. Okay. Yeah. So uh, that, he, that you're only you're, you're only going to be shooting when you're trying to make a real fight look fake. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, he made people look really good. He told a really good story. Um, I never liked his character, but I loved his work. Uh, he never got the championship. Uh, possibly because he had what's known in wrestling as the curse of the good worker. Uh, he didn't need the belt to be compelling. This okay. also was true right. about a few other wrestlers, but uh, essentially if you're really, really good, then they're going to put you wherever because they need you there. He was he was the Dan Aykroyd of the WWF. He was a utility man. Yes, he was. Yeah, he was. Yeah, Okay. that's a good way to put it. Uh, or the Phil Hartman. You know, for later generations. Mm. Um, yeah. He had been contacted by the rival company at the time, WCW, because uh, <laughs> his contract was up. <laughs> what? Oh, I'm just remembering, you know, oh. two rich guys having a dick-waving contest from from yeah. our, our exhaustive survey of this before. But oh, yeah. Keep going. Oh, yeah. And WCW going. offered him a decent amount of money. Um and they offered him half the days that the WWF was requiring to make that same money. So if you're wrestling 300, 320 days a year, that's a lot of wear and tear on your body. And oh, you're, yeah. you're all that travel and, and all that, all the havoc that that wreaks on your family. Um, so if you get offered to do the same amount of money for literally half the days, 160 days, you're going to take it. Um, and it was a guaranteed contract, which the WWF did not do at the time. The only guarantee they had was they guaranteed you $150 a night for 10 nights a year. That was the guarantee. Anything you made over that was uh, because you worked for it. It was like, uh, you know, kind of like you get a minimum and then you get commission. Really? Yeah. And it was all discretionary. Now, you you worked really hard and you brought people in and 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 you got a slice of that pie based on where you were on the card. Um, but it was discretionary. So, wow. Yeah. And, and Vince McMahon did not have the money to be able to give people, uh, guaranteed contracts in the mid nineties. Now oh, in the okay. mid nineties, he'd almost gone bankrupt, uh, as had a whole bunch of other things that I loved a lot, uh, including Marvel comics. 
Um, I still am thinking about doing an episode of why a bunch of different things almost went bankrupt in the middle of a really good economic upturn. But Vincent McMahon did not uh, want to match the the contract. And, and Scott went to him and said, you know, if you match it, I'll stay because I want to stay. You've done great things for me. You've done great things with my character. I've made mm-hmm. a lot of money with you. And Vince said, if I match your contract, if I give you a guaranteed contract, I have to give guaranteed contracts to a bunch of other guys that are above you. And I can't afford to do that. And so yeah. McMahon didn't match it. So so what you're saying is that, that Ted Turner mm-hmm. literally bought talent out from under yeah. the WWF because yes. he 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 had the fuck you money to do it. Yeah, he did. He did. Um, and okay. that was the one thing that WCW had that the WWF didn't. WWF had – it's so weird because it was – Ted Turner ran a, a media empire. You would think their production values of their shows would have been much better, but they weren't. WWF was just a wrestling company. Ted Turner's thing was a TV company that had wrestling on it. Um, and and the WWF had so much better production and so much better everything um, for an, any number of reasons. But – uh, ultimately, uh, McMahon couldn't match Scott Hall's offer. Now, yeah, the other wrestler in our story, whose contract was up one week later, uh, was a man named Kevin Nash. Okay, he'd been on the lower to middle of the card in most of the promotions he'd been in. Okay, he was about seven feet tall. He looked amazing, and yet, and he was incredibly smart. I mean, he is an incredibly well-spoken, smart fellow. Um, but he could not catch a break. Uh, he was one of the master blasters known as Steel. That name ring a bell? It shouldn't. Vaguely. Yeah. He was Vinny Vegas. He was nope. Oz. Nope. I encourage you after the show to look up Oz. It's a ridiculous gimmick. When he came to the WWF, <laughs> he came in as Shawn Michaels' bodyguard, Diesel. Oh, okay. And he got pushed to the moon because Vince McMahon likes big champions. Uh, he, within a year of being in the WWF, he was the champion. And he was the longest, one of the longest reigning champions in the 1990s. Um, he also went to Vince McMahon asking him to match the offer from WCW for guaranteed money because he really wanted to stay. He told Vince flat out, Nobody has done with me what you've been able to do. I want to stay. And Vince said, I can't match guaranteed contracts. I just can't. It's bad business for me. So, so okay. <clears throat> with with the reputation that McMahon has earned. Yes. I'm, I'm not going to say gotten because I think <laughs> there is an aspect of earned involved. Oh, yeah. Um, as, as being, you know, just a giant douchebag. Yes. I, I find it I find it really amazing that this is actually a circumstance where he wasn't actually fucking anybody over. Yeah, this, he, this was no seriously. I I, I want like <laughs> like he's not an idiot. I'm sure he wanted to keep these guys. Yeah, he did. And and like no, and 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 Turner was literally showing up just like. Here's a bunch so of money. Yeah. I'm 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 miming I'm miming counting bills you yeah. know in my hand hubba 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 money 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 who do you trust a la Jack Nicholson like right there's there was just no way for him to compete with that and and I I I I think I think it's worth kind of pointing that up because everybody knows now because mm-hmm. the WWE is 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 a cultural juggernaut 
you say the word Vince McMahon, you say the name Vince McMahon, everybody goes, oh, that guy's a prick. Yeah. You know, but but nowadays, if you say the name Ted Turner, mm-hmm. like people younger than you and me Don't are going to be like, who's, no. who's, yeah. who's that? Oh, yeah. You know, well, you know, he was the founder of CNN, TNT, TBS, WC. TBS, the Braves. WCW. I think he had a stock in the Hawks. Uh, and, he did. Yeah. And uh, I don't think he owned the Falcons, but he owned the TV rights to basically all Atlanta sports. Yeah. He he was amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he was. Yeah. He 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 was he was the Donald Trump of of media airwaves mm-hmm. in in the very early nineties. He he was the name everybody knew. Mm-hmm. And. He he also wound up earning a reputation as being a gigantic douchebag. Yeah, well, turns out money for, does that to you. Well, yeah, money yeah. money tends to do that to you. Um, and I think in in Ted's case, um, you know, he he was always you know a rich boy to begin with. Oh yeah. Uh, you know. Uh, so, but you know, but 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 he doesn't have the level of, of name recognition nowadays true, that Vince McMahon does. And so I kind of want to make the point for, for nerds listening who are younger than you and me mm-hmm. that like, no, no, there were in fact people who were bigger dick bags than Vince McMahon. Yeah. And Vince or, is an interesting yeah. case because he contains multitudes. I mean, he, on the one hand, Yes, he he ran an incredibly exploitative carnival. On the other hand, uh, you've heard of Mr. Fuji, right? Yeah. Okay, so Mr. Fuji uh, was this guy who'd wrestled since the 50s, uh, and he was a manager in the 80s and 90s, um, and then he kind of went away because managers went away. Um, One day, a wrestler came back to Vince and told him, hey, I just went to the movies before the show, and you know who was tearing tickets was Mr. Fuji. And Vince handed the wrestler ten thousand dollars in a in a bag and said, "Go give that to him." Like, when a guy has that much discretionary income, it's he's he's been a dick to do it, and he still is a dick in a lot of ways. But he does contain this like very generous heart at the same way. And I'm not a Vince McMahon yeah. stand, but at the no. same like he contains multitudes, and and he genuinely wanted these guys. Um, to to make the money that they thought that they should make and he just knew that he wouldn't be able to do it he also i think knew that these guys were a little bit older and that they were on the way down like they were burning pretty hot but they were on their way down and he needed to build new stars anyway so there's a few things going on but ultimately the wwf could not match these contracts so yeah no both men go to wcw and they had guaranteed contracts, and they had something called favored nation status. So when you get to WCW, um, there is a term for getting the most pay that you can get, and it's really kind of a tiered system. Um, if you're making Sting money, because Sting was kind of the hot item there, yeah, that yeah. means you're making the top tier of money, and it was like $750,000 a year kind of money. Yeah. All right. Um. And so when they get there, um, Scott Hall has favored nation status, and he tells uh, Kevin Nash, hey, when you show up, negotiate for more money because you were the champion, so you should be able to draw more money than they're offering to pay you. Talk them up. 
And Kevin Nash said, all right, cool. Well, what Scott Hall knew was that because he had this thing called the favored nation clause, and what that is is anytime somebody comes in who's newer than you, if they come in at more money, <laughs> you get a raise to match them. A Me Too clause. Yeah. And so the nice. both of them had a Me Too clause for each other. And they're coming in at the most. It's just so clever. Um, and so they got raises to match each other. And so, you know, you know WCW is going to do a big thing with them. Now, WCW uh, at this point is rating talent. They're not building their own uh, within, really. Um, and so it's the end of May 1996. Scott Hall shows up on WCW television with very vague threats. He shows up at the end of a show uh, and he says, you know, you know who I am. You don't know why I'm here. And he's still talking with the pseudo Cuban accent. Um, but he and he's wearing a little bit of gold, but he's not Razor Ramon, but he's looking very similar. There's a whole lawsuit about it. A couple weeks later, Kevin Nash joins him and they start calling out the company itself. WCW. They didn't challenge specific wrestlers um, exactly, um, except for Sting. Uh, so they they start by challenging the company, and then they challenge Sting as kind of the, the, the face of the company. And then they challenge the company's executives and its owners. And it's a really different story. Like normally you come in and you want to pick a fight with that guy. They're like calling out WCW, and they're calling out Eric Bischoff. And they keep challenging Ted Turner and all this. Now, these guys work for it, but this is the storyline that they're doing. Like, they're coming in and challenging the actual Federation um, and its its uh, exemplars. Um, they were called the Outsiders, uh, I think, by Mean Gene Okerlund first, um, because they kept coming through the crowd and invading the ring during matches. And sometimes they'd show up with aluminum baseball bats. And they'd smack them on the on the stairs on the way up. Like, there was a sense of, like, what is going on here? Like, they really made it real. Um, they disrupted everything, and they attacked wrestlers on the show. Um, and what they did was they never said outright that they were from the WWF still, but they would imply it until they were asked point blank, and then they said no. And that was to avoid legal trouble because there were a couple of depositions that were happening. Like, WWF was suing... WCW for uh, basically stealing their intellectual property. So in June of 96, they appear at something called the Great American Bash. It's one of the uh, big pay-per-views. Um, they bullied the on-air announcer and vice president of WCW named Eric Bischoff into naming his three wrestlers who would meet them the next month at the pay-per-view Bash at the Beach. He refused to, so they powerbombed him through a table to make their point. Now, a powerbomb, wow. for those of you that aren't watching, uh, is where you take a, a wrestler and you put his head through your uh, legs. So you're basically your crotch is sitting on the back of his head. Um, and then you grab him by the waist and you flip him up so that his crotch is now in your face and his legs are over your shoulder. So you're wearing him like a feed bag. And then you slam him back first down onto the mat from your shoulders. So it's it's a devastating maneuver, and they they did it to him through a table. Um, the next night on Monday Nitro, and this is like, wow, these guys haven't had a match yet, and they're just disrupting everything, and they're bringing this uh, hitherto unseen violence. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So 
the next night on Monday Nitro, which is their night their their, their weekly uh, Monday night show, uh, Eric Bischoff had a draft and uh, he drafted Lex Luger, Macho Man Randy Savage, and Sting to represent the WCW against the Outsiders. Now Hulk Hogan was away with an injury, that's why he wasn't a part of this. Um, all three of those guys started painting their faces to show how much on the same team they were because Sting always wore face paint. Yeah. Okay. Pause real sure. quick. Um, so at this point, uh, Hulk Hogan was already with WCW. Mm-hmm. He had been for okay. two years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. And the Giant is the champion. Um, he's now known as the Big Show. Uh, the Giant yeah. is the champion, having beaten Hulk Hogan, and Hogan like took some time off to take care of uh, probably a hip injury. He's usually got those. Okay. Um, they all start painting their faces. Like I said, the lines are drawn. Uh, the Outsiders had a third mystery partner, um, and they would uh, and and they said, you know, we will we'll bring him to the show. You just bring these three goofs, and and we'll do it. And they're going to take on the legendary Macho Man Savage, as well as WCW stalwarts Lex Luger and Sting. And Lex had just come back uh, from the WWF uh, a couple years earlier, or about okay. a year earlier, and and he was getting a pretty good push. The Outsiders refused to name their partner, uh, and they came out to the match at Bash in the Beach uh, on, in July of 1996. Uh, just the two of them. Okay, and This is the first wrestling match that they're a part of. And during the beginning of the match, Lex Luger, Lex Luger gets kayfabe injured uh, and stretchered out. Now, kayfabe means like, you know, this is, this is the storyline that's going on. So he basically gets Stinger Splash. Sting does this move where if you're in the corner, he'll go and he'll jump on you. It's called a stinger splash. It's devastating. Well, it, it hit Lex as well as Scott Hall, uh, and uh, and and anytime there's action in the ring, Scott Hall is taking all the bumps because Kevin Nash kind of sucks as a worker. Um, he does. Uh, he has four moves. He's a big man. He he had like twenty knee surgeries before he even started wrestling. Um, he's you know it's not necessarily his fault, but it, it, that just goes to show how good of a worker he was. That he wasn't a good worker. Um, and yeah. yet he's central to a lot of the ring action. But yeah, Lex Luger gets stretchered out, and now it's a two-on-two two match. And eventually the situation becomes dire for WCW's representatives, Sting and uh, Randy Savage. Um, and Sting is outside with Scott Hall, if I recall correctly, and Randy Savage has just been, I think, powerbombed. I, I don't, I, it's been a while since I've watched the match. Hulk Hogan comes out to save everyone. Uh, thunderous applause, huge pop, which was good because he was starting to get kind of a more of a tepid response. The cavalry was here. The outsiders immediately fled the ring. And then America's hero dropped a leg bomb uh, or did the atomic leg drop on Randy Savage uh, multiple times. Uh, he turned bad guy right then and there. Um, Savage and Sting retreat. Hogan is there standing with Scott Hall and Kevin Nash in the ring. And the audience is so mad at him, they're throwing garbage into the ring. It's a very Southern. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is this is where you can tell it's a Southern company because they are throwing stuff. Um, Not that New York wasn't brutal in the 70s. They were. They threw like glasses of acid at people and, and stabbed them. Yeah, that happened in the 50s. The fuck? Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you were a heel, cool. you yeah, your your tires would get slashed. Like, all kinds of horrible shit. Um, wow. People thought it was real. Um, so, then Mean Gene Okerlund comes in. And here's what they say. 
Okay, so I'm quoting from exactly what happened from, from the aftermath. Mean Gene, I have been with you for so many years. For you to join up with the likes of these two men absolutely makes me sick to my stomach. And I think that these people here, and he points to the crowd, and a lot of other people around the world would have had just enough, just about enough of this man pointing at Kevin Nash and this man pointing at Scott Hall. And you want to put yourself in this group? You've got to be kidding me. And Hogan, well, the first thing you got to realize, brother, is that right here is the future of wrestling. You can call this the new world order of wrestling, brother. I just want to let that set in. That was a improvised line. Really? It was. As far as I've been able to tell, he improved that line. Um, but it, it took off. Okerlund, pointing to all the debris on the mat, says, look at all of this crap in the ring. This is what the future for you. This was. This is what is in the future for you if you want to hang around with the likes of this man Hall and this man Nash, Hulk Hogan. As far as I'm concerned, all this crap in the ring represents these fans out here. For two years, brother, for two years I held my head high. I did everything for the charities. I did everything for the kids. And the reception I got when I came out here, you fans can stick it, brother. Because if it wasn't for Hulk Hogan, you people wouldn't be here. And if it wasn't for Hulk Hogan, Eric Bischoff would still be selling meat from a truck in Minneapolis. And if it wasn't for Hulk Hogan, all these Johnny-come-latelys that you see out here wrestling wouldn't be here. I was selling out the world, brother, when they were bumming gas to put in their car to get to high school. So the way it is now, brother, with Hulk Hogan and the New World Organization of Wrestling, brother, and me and the new blood by my side, what you gonna do, brother, when the New World Organization runs wild on you? See, that's why I'm saying that New World Order was just a line that he tossed out. And then he was like trying to pick it back up and he was, yeah. So that's the beginning of the NWO. And from that point forward, the NWO, the new world order of wrestling would attack people with bats. They would entirely disrupt the wrestling shows and they would threaten wrestlers. And Hogan then challenged the giant for the title at a pay-per-view called hog wild, which was a biker rally up in Sturgis that they gave away for free like they, they didn't charge a gate at all but it was all pay-per-view was tv money it was a weird thing at hog wild and, yeah. and presumably since it was at sturgis the crowd was made up of bikers oh yeah 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 and that's which, it's, which matches up which matches up real well with nwo's uh -huh. whole their aesthetic you know, yeah and yeah so the outsiders wrestle and they defeat sting and lex luger so there's a return match uh, Hogan defeats the Giant, winning the championship. Uh, his longtime friend, the Booty Man. You might know the Booty Man as the Zodiac or the Butcher. No? How about Brutus the Barber Beefcake? Uh, okay. After he stopped being Brutus the Barber Beefcake uh, and he went to WCW, he was the Booty Man. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, he started as the Butcher and then he was the Zodiac. And then he was the booty man. But you get the idea. So, yeah. Okay. And he was Hulk Hogan's best friend uh, in real life. So Hogan brought him with him. Also, I think he was Hogan's weed guy. So. <laughs> <laughs> so. Now, now, where do you get that from? Uh, just because of how often Hogan had him with him. And, and it, there's just something about it. Like. 
Because back then, traveling with weed was a bad, bad idea, you know, especially in the South. Yeah. So it's not like Hogan didn't partake and the other guys didn't partake. (laughs) So, yeah. Now, he comes out wearing an NWO T-shirt, and he seems ready to join the NWO, right? And everybody knows that he's Hulk Hogan's best friend. Hogan pretended that he was going to let him in and then beat him down and spray-painted the championship belt. With the words or with the letters NWO, so now this this ten pounds of gold belt, this this belt that has been a tradition in WCW, is now being spray painted with NWO, like it's they are throwing all the tradition oh out the window. God, the fans must have gone Apeshit. ballistic. Yeah, it was it was insane. Um, so yeah, that was that was um, yeah. I mean that that was the beginning. As, as you can see, of the NWO. And now they're a faction of very, very powerful bad guys. Here's where it gets interesting. Who came in and ran roughshod over everyone in the WCW. They called all the shots that they wanted. They had the biggest prizes in the organization. The Outsiders would get the tag belts in October at Halloween Havoc. Um, and they added influential wrestlers to their faction. Um, now, I'm going to take a break from that. Uh, to uh, ask you, uh, where did you used to get uh, comic books uh, before the shelter in place? Oh, um, I haven't actually spent a lot of time at uh, like buying comics, uh, but uh, just down the street, probably my favorite place to go into and and maybe pick one up when I mm-hmm. when I would. Uh, is uh, Empire Comics uh, you know, here in Sacramento? Yeah, I I also like Empire Comics. Uh, now they are still open, um, but they do all kinds of other things right now for their customers. Um, if you call them at nine one six four eight two eight seven seven nine, you can talk to the owner Ben, um, and he will actually put together a package for you. Um, and uh, put it out for you to pick up when you are ready. Uh, he can do a lot of different things for you um, at Empire Comics. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful comic book store, and I can't wait to go back uh, when it is, um, what am I thinking? When, Prudent to do so. Yeah, yeah, when it's safe to do so, I guess, would be uh, a, a term that I would use. Um, and he has given me the uh, the permission um, to plug his his comic book store um in terms his, of his fine establishment yeah um and so he mails comics out to people uh he still has gift certificates and he also he reads a lot so he if you don't know what you're looking for he could probably get you close to it he can do re- recommendations um All right. also if you have any gaps in your collections he is restocking back issues so if you let him know he will find the issues that will fill the gaps and if you have kids the books are always 20% off for the kids or kids books nice. are 20% off. Yeah. Very so cool. I encourage all of you to go to, uh, well, you don't go to it anymore, but um, it's at 1120 Fulton Avenue. Um, and you can call Ben at 916-482-8779. All right. So now back to the NWO. Um, yes. By this time, October of 1996, yeah. By the way, it's October of 1996. Putting putting a pin in that date. Sure. Yeah. Because I'm feeling like that's going to become important. It somehow. might be. It might be. Now, by the time these three men 
are settling into their roles as the top of the heap at WCW. Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, Hulk Hogan. They have the top championship belts. Okay. okay. Um, a few more things have happened. Uh, first, Ted DiBiase. You remember his name? Yeah. Yeah. Million, yeah. Million Dollar Man. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. That's Ted DiBiase. So he okay. can't come in as the Million Dollar Man because that is uh, a gimmick that got started in WWF. But... Ted yeah. DiBiase, that's his real name. So he comes in as Billionaire Ted. Wait, isn't Billionaire Ted the guy who owns this whole operation? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so he just joined, making he, sure. Yep, he joined them in August as... Now, he's a retired wrestler. Um, he's had too many injuries, um, but he's a wonderful mouthpiece, and uh, he kind of represents the money behind the throne. Um. So he's there kind of for name recognition. Now, I would point out, again, Hulk Hogan, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, Ted DiBiase, all were made famous by the Northern Company. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, no, we, we went we went through all of this. In yes. The, the magnum opus of, of how all of this <laughs> reflects uh, uh, lost cause uh, yes. ideology. Yes. They're, they're, they're all symbolically a bunch of, you know, uh, union. I'm sorry. I mean, Northern, you know, Yankee, aggressionists. Yeah. Aggression, aggressionists, uh, <laughs> Carpet you know, prosecuting. Yes. Prosecuting a war, mm -hmm. an unjust uh, war, of, of an unjust war of Northern aggression, yep. uh, against, against a, an, an order of, of things, a, a tradition, a set of traditions, a yes. heritage, a if heritage. you will, I will, uh, focused, focused, you know, in and around Atlanta, Right. Um, which, you know, I just want to say, um, go big Willie. Yeah. <laughs> in, in this moment, just want to say Atlanta has, yeah. has particularly important, uh, uh, meaning in this context. Uh, uh yes. Sherman, <laughs> Sherman, Sherman, Sherman had the right idea. That's mm -hmm. all I'm saying yeah. in regard to that. So, okay. So Carry they on. also had a, another member join them um, in September. Uh, he was the first defector from WCW, the giant, the guy that Hogan had beaten at Hog Wild, the giant. The only guy bigger than Kevin Nash has now joined the, the NWO. Uh, Big Show is actually on record for absolutely hating this idea, and he feels like this was their, their way to neuter him and to make it so that they all had the push and he didn't. But story-wise... It's interesting that now they've got a uh, defector, and now they've got the two top titles, the the tag team champions and uh, the the champion. They've got the largest wrestler in the federation, probably the second largest as well with Kevin Nash, um, and they've got a spokesman. So they've got muscle beyond compare. And the very next week, it appeared as though Sting had joined the NWO and had attacked his longtime friend Lex Luger with the aid of a referee who was in favor of the NWO, Nick Patrick. They even had a referee who was NWO. Wow. Yep. Now, this is September, did I say? October. Yeah, yeah it's October, because what's coming up is the Fall Brawl. Uh, and Fall Brawl is their November pay-per-view. And it's normally, Fall Brawl is called War Games. Uh, and it's normally a cage that's stretched over two rings that are stacked next to each other. And you get two factions in there that have just been warring and warring and warring. Uh, well, WCW had its team, Lex Luger, Arn Anderson, and Ric Flair. 
Arn Anderson or Ric okay. Flair. Okay, yeah. wait a minute. Ric Flair. By this time, wasn't Ric Flair pretty old? He's always to me. He's always been old, but actually, he was okay. only in his early forties. Really? He and Hulk Hogan are within a couple of years of each other. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Some film. I okay. I think he was about my age at this time. Okay. Uh, yeah, and and uh, Arn Anderson was I think thirty seven, but he always looked forty, like okay. forever. Like he was born wow. looking forty. But Arn Anderson, uh, Lex Luger, and Ric Flair. Sting was supposed to join them, but now, because it looks as though Sting had attacked Lex Luger, uh, he no-shows. And so they're like, ah, Sting is okay. So Hogan and Hall and Nash were there for Team NWO, and their fourth member was a surprise. Guess who their fourth member was? Sting. Yes. So Team WCW felt betrayed. Until the real Sting showed up and beat up the entire NWO, including the fake Sting. So who was the fake Sting? Oh, God, what was his name? Jeff Farmer, I think. Um, a guy who looked a lot like Sting, if you put on body paint and uh, you give him the same tights. Really? Yeah. All right. So uh, this the, the real Sting, having beaten up everybody, including fake Sting, then left the WCW, upset that they had not believed him, and Fake Sting ended up winning the match for the NWO by beating Lex Luger with Real Sting's submission hold. Okay. Visually, it works. <laughs> yeah, okay. So the next night, it's obvious that Sting isn't the traitor, and yet what they had on video was a Sting uh, submitting Lex Luger, who those two were best friends. The Real Sting comes out the next night on Nitro, and what's interesting is when you think of wrestling, you always see it from the same angle, right? That hard camera up in the stands looking. looking yeah. Right. Yeah yeah. 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 Sting kept his back deliberately to that camera the whole time. And he had on some new face paint uh, you see coming down and it's black and white only. Now, interestingly, the NWO's colors were black and white only. So here and, and to the point where Hulk Hogan is now wearing black and white. He's not wearing the yeah. uh, the red and the yellow. Red and red and yellow. Yeah. So here's what Sting had to say. Uh, he comes out there and he says, I want a chance to explain something that happened last Monday night at Nitro. Last Monday night, I was on an airplane flying from L.A. to Atlanta. When I got to Atlanta, I tuned into the TV on Nitro or I turned in the TV to Nitro. And I thought I was watching a rerun. It was a very convincing film. Often imitated, but never duplicated, though. And what else did I see? I saw people. I saw wrestlers. I saw commentators. And I saw the best friends doubt the stinger. That's right. Doubted the stinger. So I heard Lex Luger say, I know where he lives. I know where he works out. I'm going to go get him. So I said to myself, well, I'll just go into seclusion. I'll wait and see what happens on Saturday night. And I tuned in Saturday night. And what did I see? More of the same. More doubt. Which brings me to fall brawl. I knew I had to get to Fall Brawl and face-to-face -face with the total package to let him know that it wasn't me. And what I got out of that was, no, Sting, I don't believe you, Sting. And he's yelling at this point. Well, all I got to say is I have been a mediator, I have been babysitter for Lex Luger, and I've given him the benefit of the doubt about a thousand times in the last 12 months. True, Lex Luger had gone good guy, bad guy, good guy. Uh and I've carried the WC ban WCW banner, and I've given my blood, my sweat, and my tears for WCW. So for all those fans out there and all those wrestlers and all the people that never doubted the stinger, I'll stand by you if you stand by me. But for all the people, all of you commentators, all of the wrestlers, and all of the best friends who did doubt me, 
you can stick it. From now on, I consider myself a free agent. That doesn't mean that you won't see the stinger from time to time. I'm going to pop in when you least expect it. So that's, pardon me, September 16th, 1996. So Fall Brawl was September. Okay. That same night, uh, so September 16th, 1996. That same night, the NWO added a sixth member, a guy named Six. Um, you might remember him as the one, two, three kid in WC or in WWF. No, no yeah, I, he's yeah. also later known as X Pac. No, yeah, he's fairly forgettable if you're not a wrestling fan. Okay, but he's right. a friend of Hall and Nash, and he kind of got made famous in uh, WWF as well. In October, they added Vincent. Um, you might remember him as Virgil. Which was in WWF. He was Ted DiBiase's manservant, million dollar oh, man, vaguely. the guy all, yeah, always okay. holding right, the money. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now that's just kind of a fun little story. When he was in WWF, his name was Virgil, because the real name of Dusty Rhodes is Virgil Runnels, so they named a character after him. <laughs> so then, when he comes down to WCW, Dusty Rhodes works with WCW, and so they name his character Vincent, Vince McMahon. Nice. So this guy's That's like funny. entire career is just based on burning each other. So here's the pattern. And we talked about it already. There's all guys yeah. from the Northern promotion coming in and taking over this promotion with a sizable defection by one person who'd previously been a monster villain. So he was a bad guy, but he was our bad guy. But now he switched over. The referee kept showing favoritism. And became their referee. And that gets us to October when Miss Elizabeth joins the NWO, betraying the Four Horsemen. She'd already betrayed Macho Man Savage to join the Four Horsemen. And now she betrays the Four Horsemen to join the NWO. Wow. Yeah. So the NWO has this real renegade kind of feel. They made guerrilla style commercials that look like they'd hijacked the signal briefly. Um, they sold their merchandise out of a truck outside to the fans. Um, they ran their own wrestling shows briefly in empty arenas. Um, they were trying really hard to make it look like a takeover with the WCW claiming that Hall, Nash, and Hogan were the only employees there who were WCW employees. And they were only employees because they held the belts. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, so getting, getting meta mm-hmm. business, like, okay. Yes. Like we, wow. we, we have to employ them cause they have our belts. If someone would beat them, we could fire them. But all these other guys, they're not part of us. So it's just this idea of like this northern takeover, right? Eric Bischoff was the vice president of WCW on the air, and he was also one of their announcers. After Halloween Havoc, so that's October, um, Roddy Piper had come to WCW, and he wanted a match with Hulk Hogan. You remember Roddy okay. Piper, right? Oh, of oh, course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so Roddy Piper, also from the north, but he had been Hogan's rival up north, and he comes down mm-hmm. and he calls out Hogan again, and he's representing tradition. Um, his his uh, promo is very long and, and windy, and there's a lot of back and forth, so I didn't bother writing it down, but essentially he wants a, a match with Hulk Hogan, and he essentially tells Hogan, um, as big as Hulkamania was, it was because of Roddy Piper because I was the one standing across from you. You have to at least admit that. Um, and and he stares Hogan down, and Hogan admits it, but then as Piper's leaving, uh, and Piper even says to Hogan, like, straighten up. And as he's leaving, Hogan says something 
uh, about Piper's kilt, and then Piper's like, oh, you want to fight, do you? Okay, well, here we go. Uh, yeah, 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 okay, yeah. Um, right. and, and he, like, at, at the, the giant is coming toward him. He's like, sit down, Sprout, and the giant backs off. <laughs> like, it's, it's a fun, fun thing. Um, well, the NWO responds by attacking and running off the announcers, forcing and, and keeping Eric Bischoff there hostage and forcing him to say that Hulk Hogan was better than Piper on the air. And at the end of that episode, uh, or at the end of the episode in mid-November of 96, mid-November of 96, Piper is arguing in the ring with Eric Bischoff about the fact that they hadn't yet made the match between him and Hogan. Uh, and the NWO comes out and attacks Piper, and they reveal that Bischoff has been with them the whole time. He stops being an announcer. He becomes the spokesman for the NWO. The corruption goes all the way to the top. The guy in charge is now a part of the New World Order with some of the most recognizable wrestlers in the company running roughshod, doing whatever they want, changing the rules as they go, all from the north. Eric Bischoff was acknowledged as being from Minneapolis. Oh, <clears throat> it gets better. Wow. <laughs> Sherman didn't burn enough. <laughs> right. So following like, his resignation, right. Eric Bischoff gives all the wrestlers an ultimatum. Either you join the NWO within the next 30 days or you be on the losing end of a beatdown forever. Many joined over the next few weeks and they're all mid carters. So now you have guys in the NWO that you can beat. And nobody's touching Hogan and all those. So they're driving the story, oh, okay. and, and you've got guys that can be beaten. After Starcade in December, they kicked the Giant out because he refused to continue an assault on Roddy Piper. So it's December of 96. Okay. All of this detail is to make the following connection. The NWO storyline was a Southern wrestling company's reflection of how the South had come to think of Bill and Hillary Clinton and most of the Democratic Party due to the efforts of Newt Gingrich and the contract with America. That is a really big head spin RKO dog kind of <laughs> kind of kind of connection there. Yeah. Um okay. So all all of that mm-hmm. all of that was was a metaphorical mythologized reflection. Yes. Is what you're saying. Yes. Of of the Southern Zitgeist toward Uncle Billy mm-hmm. Clinton mm-hmm. and and the Democratic Party. Yeah. Don't forget Hillary. She's yeah, from well, the yeah, North. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's true. She is. Yep. Uh, so wait, is 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 uh, Miss Miss Elizabeth Hillary in this in this scenario? I think Hillary's probably Eric Bischoff. Okay. And I don't think it's a one to one, but I do think that Hillary's probably Eric Bischoff, and and okay. Hulk Hogan is very much uh, Bill Clinton. Okay. So. All right. So. Oh, okay. But but and and all of this is through the manipulation. Of uh, or, or or through the machinations and the and the messaging mm-hmm. of um, the Republican Party led at at this point uh, uh, strategically led mm-hmm. by Newt Gingrich. Um, by this point, yes, 
but there are some other players that we need to acknowledge on the way. And okay. so I'll finish okay. by acknowledging uh, a, a, a bit there, and then I'll, I'll stop us after kind of a, a big, okay. important watershed. So in okay. 1992, George Bush loses his bid for re-election, largely because the Republican, Republican vote was splintered by Ross Perot. Yeah. Uh, see, if you present two really rich people from Texas, the right doesn't know what to do with itself. Uh, so in 19, yeah, in 1992, see, see this, see this button right here, yeah. this button right here, this button, this is the one that makes the trains run on time. My, I used to love my, my favorite Ross Perot joke. Oh, like I used, I used to love the one where, um, Dana Carvey, you know, cause Ross Perot <clears throat> bought like a half hour of TV time to put out his platform. Oh, and yeah. you know now now let me let me tell you now I I want to I want to I won't I won't understand something until I've eaten it taken it into my intestines digested it and passed it through my colon like just <laughs> but my now, fit, my now, yeah go on I'm, I'm instituting a national bedtime of 8 p.m. <laughs> my now, that seems really early but you're going to be glad you went to bed that time when the national <laughs> alarm clock goes off at 5:30 the next morning yeah that 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 particular impersonation was, yeah. I think, one of Dana Carvey's true genius moments. master strokes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I'm, but I'm, but I'm, I'm stepping on your toes. Carry oh, it's on. fine. Uh, I was gonna say my absolute favorite, though, of all the impersonations of Ross Perot. It wasn't even a very good one, but the 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 phrase has stuck with me to the point where it's a quote on my classroom wall. Um, and it was Will Durst, San Francisco comedian Will Durst, the first comic okay. I ever saw live. Once I turned 18, I, I have the ticket still from my birthday. Nice. Um, and he said that Ross Perot is, is he said he's an enchanted tree stump with ears, um, <laughs> which I loved. Um, and my parents would drag me to all the Earth Day festivals in the Bay Area. So and and very often Will Durst would do comedy at them and I would just go and sit yeah. and watch that, you know. But my favorite was he says, you know, Ross Bro, he just he would talk so weird and he'd have the weirdest metaphors that wouldn't make any sense, but because of his accent, you'd think they should. So he said, like, look, you can't put a porcupine up on a bar and expect to make licorice. <laughs> Which is <laughs> it's it's my favorite quote. It's so good. Having having lived through both of Ross Perot's campaigns. Yep. That actually sounds like him. Yeah, it does. It really like, does. And I love that phrase. Like, you can't put a porcupine up on a bar and expect to make licorice. I wish that those words existed in Latin, but they don't. <laughs> <laughs> so. Nice. So, in 1992, Pat Buchanan pulls Bush further to the right and was allowed to make the keynote speech at the Republican convention. Mm -hmm. And this speech is the watershed, okay? So he went all out for the culture war, giving a speech called The Culture War in Houston, Texas. He spoke for 30 minutes, and he hit all the boilerplate issues that we've come to recognize. He started them, though, or he named them. He said that radicals and liberals were dressed up as moderates in the, quote, single greatest exhibition of cross-dressing in American history, which links transvestitism with liberal ideology and, by extension, with the Democrats. Wow. So, yeah. so you know, he, he wouldn't get away. So, so he said that in 92. Yes. 
And in 96, mm-hmm. 2000, he wouldn't have gotten away with that. Now, he would again. he'd get away with it again. I know. Isn't that weird? That's fucked up is what it is. Mm-hmm. All right, carry on. He was referring to the Democratic National Convention, which that year had been held in Madison Square Garden. Now, he's in Houston, Texas. Houston had its own wrestling promotion there. Um, it, it was a very southern type of wrestling, uh, but it's in Houston, Texas, right? Texas very much identified themselves as the South, the place where Kennedy got killed. Like they're yeah. like, yeah. So, and Madison Square Garden is is the crown jewel of the WWF in terms of venues. Um, Madison Square Garden represents everything that there is about New York, you know, to the people in Houston. Here's some yeah, other well, things. Proto- yeah, it's prototypical Yankee. Yes, it's, it's everything. It is. It represents literally everything that is the urbanized. Yes, Yankee. I mean, during the Civil War, mm-hmm. it was what symbolized everything about what what you know Yankee who Yankees were. Mm-hmm. You know, to to anybody from the South. Never mind the fact that you know, uh, if you're talking about a Michigander or an Iowan or you mm-hmm. know a Mainer, they're not they're not from that. But that was. That was the stereotype of yeah. of you know the the uh, you know Billy Billy Union yeah uh, was was the, you know he was a he was a soft city boy mm-hmm. yeah so here's some other things that he said Pat Buchanan says quote there is a religious war going on in our country for the soul of America I'm just gonna back up for a second anytime anybody talks about soul for a country. They're pulling directly on Mussolini. Um, the only time that they're not is if they are in reaction to the hyper right wing policies, um, and they're pulling on a moral authority, like in the civil rights movement. Um, but they're still using a very Mussolini e language. Um, it is a culture war as a uh, as critical to this to the kind of nation we will one day be as was the Cold War itself. He also went on to point out that a victory by Bill Clinton and the Democrats would impose on this country, quote, abortion on demand, a litmus test for the Supreme Court, homosexual rights, discrimination against religious schools, women in combat units. That's change, all right, but it's not the kind of change America wants, it is not the kind of change America needs, and it's not the kind of change that we can tolerate in a nation that we still call God's country. So, in the middle of all that, the first thing that occurs to me is I want to look at him and go, so, Patty Boy, mm-hmm. um, aren't you imposing a litmus test if you, you know, require that judges, uh, you know, support pro-life mm-hmm. positions just as much as you're accusing the other side of requiring them to be, you know, pro-choice? Oh, there you go, using my like, arguments. Nice job. Nice try. Ha, ha, ha. See, that's the thing yeah. about being that kind of a shitbird is that you can accuse <laughs> the other person of what you're doing and then they can't point out when you do it. Yeah. Yeah. So, because then you're like, oh, nice two quoque argument there. You know, it's, yeah. Yeah, but but, it, but it's not wrong. No. I mean, it, it is it is too, too quoque, but it's not, it's it's factual. Like yeah, it's this one is what yeah. you're doing. Like, yeah. 
like like the fact that it falls into that category doesn't automatically make it illegitimate like oh no no you, i'm done thinking you, already sorry yeah you, you lost <laughs> well you know and and <laughs> That's you how know, it works in, in sort of sort of in in mitigation mm-hmm. in it in, in i don't want to say defense but you know at least back in 92 that would be the point that they stopped thinking as opposed to nowadays they never start yeah so yep wow all right so so he gives he gives this barn burner of a of a yal qaeda mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> religious war yep speech and then clinton wins yeah well and that's exactly my point was that this really sets the tone for the losing side. Okay. He would also later name abortion, sexual orientation, pop culture, Confederate flag controversies, feminism, school vouchers, environmentalism, elitism, that's one of my favorites, considering the background of both presidential candidates, people's dislike of his speech itself, all as examples of the polarization that's sweeping the nation because of this culture war. So again, the Bushes, Super rich people who helped hide Nazi money, they're they're the good people. Uh, this guy who is an adopted uh, stepson of really you know kind of lower middle class folk, um, who bootstrapped himself up out of Arkansas and on and on and on. That's not one of us. And I'm going to no. get into that much more. But it's just kind of interesting that he's like you know these people are elites, and it's like wait a minute, you're standing for the bushes. Yeah, and 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 um, I had a thought, but I got I got lonely and left. But um, you know, but yeah, you want to you want to talk about you know families. Oh, oh, the, the thought came back. Mm-hmm. This is, I think, the the very beginning. Mm-hmm. This this is this is the the point at which it actually becomes overt within Republican culture. Mm-hmm that any democratic president is prima facie illegitimate because the presidency should be held by a republican like at the end of the day if you right. if you if you if you tighten down on whatever complaints they have about bill clinton whatever complaints mm-hmm. they have about obama what it all comes down to in the end mm-hmm. is they're Democrats, and Democrats are inherently politically illegitimate, period. I think I'm going to go one step farther than that, though, is that um, the Republicans had a better finger on the pulse of America's demographic shift, and they realized that the only way to keep power as a, a, a growing minority, which I guess a shrinking minority, was to push these culture war buttons and was to um, create a greater sense of tribalism and ultimately make themselves into an insurgent party because people want to root for the underdog. And again, we go back to lost cause. Yeah. And that's going to be real easy for a lot of people to grab onto. So he also railed against publicly funded art, a war on Christmas, and the inferior moral authority of Clinton compared to Bush which that really makes me happy. This wait, okay. Yeah. The war on Christmas thing. Sure. 90 92? 92. 
Oh, we'll get into it talk radio really, in the next it, episode. Honest yeah. to God, goes mm-hmm. back that far. Mm-hmm. No shit. Yeah. So in okay. 1992, when Bush loses his bid for another term and Clinton wins, by nowhere near a majority, I might add, and that also feeds into it, there's a tremendous feeling of betrayal in America, like you were talking about. The losing side doesn't accept its loss and figure out how to win next time, they're too invested in the narrative that there's a war for America's culture. And it's turned into ordinary Americans versus liberalism. And what's interesting there is ordinary ordinary Americans is a group of people. Liberalism is an ideology. So mm-hmm. they kind of just took the Cold War and reskinned it on some levels. It's an effort to take back the America the same way the military took back the streets of Los Angeles after the Rodney King riots. And he mentions that. There's no mention of what led to the riots, of course. Uh, They now start to go after high school history curriculum. The fact that there's a number of court cases that are working their way through the system that come up at this time is more proof of the evil of liberalism. Like, that's all part of what Pat Buchanan had started and named. And it's not that he started it, it's that he named it. And by naming it, he gave it a power. And he gave people yeah. a brand to latch onto, and the yeah, he's he's not the originator of these tropes. He's no. the codifier of them. Yes, and the worst part is the punchline here is that Bill Clinton was hardly a liberal. He was as centrist as they come. He had former Republican advisors. He implemented TANF, uh, temporary assistance for needy families, which replaced the AFDC, which was aid to families with dependent children. I would point out the first word of each of those: temporary versus aid. Essentially, there were more efforts built into the system for means testing, lifetime limits on being on the programs, and new work requirements. He built... Uh, yeah, go ahead. Okay, hold on. Mm-hmm. So, so, but the Tant thing, was mm-hmm. that during his first term or was that... Yeah, uh, it was his first after, term. Really? Yep. Because I, I had always been under the impression... Well, I mean, he did do it, but I, I, I had thought that the... Uh, sweeping the middle out from under the Republicans by doing that stuff was was strictly a um, I got I, I lost my shirt in '94 so now I'm going to do went with a congressional midterm so now uh, I'm going to do this in '96. The triangulation happened in '92 and he was lucky that uh, Ross Perot came in and split the Republican vote otherwise he would have lost. Yeah. Um, hmm. He used the the Republican program, their reform plan on welfare. He did their program because he twice vetoed it, and then he was like, okay, fine, we'll use it. He was also a big fan of deregulation in the communications industries, Mm -hmm. as well as the financial industries. Under his presidency, Glass-Steagall took more of a hit in terms of what banks could or couldn't do with depositor monies. Um, He also deregulated the derivative markets. The man was not a liberal, but he was painted as one because he was part of a growing movement toward a greater equality for people on the margins of American society. And here you could say he is more of a liberal. Yeah. Um, he was far more liberal in his approach toward, uh, than prior presidents. But take a look at who the prior presidents were. Um, Reagan. Yeah. When it came to the rights like, of. Yeah. It, like for, for the love of God, man. Mm-hmm. A man no, who, who I mean, would have made Eisenhower just shake his head and go golfing. <laughs> well, 
in in his defense, lots of things made Eisenhower shake his head and go golfing. But <laughs> very true. You no, know, <laughs> but but you know, I mean, Ike, who finished his term by by warning Americans against the the military industrial complex, for God's sake. Yeah. You know, and then and then you know that that then turned into you know Kennedy, which turned into Johnson, which turned into Nixon. Mm-hmm. You know, and and you know, for God's sake, yeah, Nixon. And Reagan ran to the right of that, and then and then and, 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 and Reagan ran to the right of that, mm-hmm. and you know uh, H. W. Bush, mm-hmm. you know, started out saying that you know uh, supply side was voodoo economics, mm-hmm. but then but then it became heresy to say that, so he had to go along with the party line. Yeah, the parasite took over the you host. Know, yeah, under and. Reagan. and yeah, and like, and 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 you know, so so saying that Bill Clinton was more liberal in in many ways than that is like saying that you know, I, I can't even think of a of a, <laughs> of a suitably ridiculous comparison, but like, you know, is to say that well, you know, Genghis Khan had his flaws, but he wasn't Vlad the Impaler. <laughs> yeah. Like. Yeah. 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 Jesus. So he he was much more liberal when it came to the rights of gays in the military, the restrictions on women's health, and assault weapons. He was more liberal than those guys. He, however, became the icon. And how he gets there, I'll talk about in the next couple episodes. He becomes the icon of liberal elitism and liberalism in the culture war that Buchanan breathed life into by calling it. Yeah. And that's where I'm going to leave us for this episode. So, all right. Um, anything you want to glean, or do you want to uh, call it here and leave the cliffhanger? Uh, um, I think I, I want to, I want to go back to to you know the whole the whole emotional zeitgeist um, surrounding surrounding the '92 election mm-hmm. because, um, as I've mentioned before, I'm a recovering Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, 92 was the beginning of my senior year of high school. Okay. And so in my journalism class, senior year of high school, the, the morning of, uh, Bill Clinton's inauguration, we watched mm-hmm. the inauguration in class mm-hmm. and, um, I was still enough of a, uh, larval, uh, Republican mm-hmm. at that point that I remember watching it and just being furious <laughs> that that smug hick was was taking the office that should have gone to my my guy right your brand lost yeah and and you know looking back on it now I want to kind of grab you know smug self-important know it all me by the lapels and and say that's that's not how this works you stupid kid mm-hmm. um you know and and i i had a whole bunch of life experiences that that led me out of that mm-hmm. but i think within the right i mean that's that's still that's like the driving ethos behind people like Tommy Laren mhm 
behind so many of the so many of the talking heads on the Ooh, right. Is, let's is, not bring her into it because she was born well after that shit. Like she, like she's glomming onto that, but she's not in any way coming. She's a shill. She's not coming no, by no, it naturally. No. Like I, I am willing to let people who were born and came of age at that time, I'm willing to let them have that as their like Battle of Kosovo moment. Um, or, you know, remember the main moment for, for them. But anybody who comes after that, they, they don't remember the fucking main. They don't get to claim it. <laughs> well, I'm not, you I'm know? not, I'm not saying that. But what, what I'm saying is it's, it's now I'm, I'm bringing her up just because mm-hmm. she's, she's the first of the talking heads that occurs to me. But, you know, you think of, you know, assholes like Tucker Carlson and all these other, you know, Fox news motherfuckers. Yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, Tommy Laren was, was raised in it, like, you know, and, and so, so she's just, you know, parroting the stuff that, you know, made mm-hmm. her daddy happy when she said it when she was a youngster, you know, but, but it's, it's this, this, this motivating factor is this bitterness over, um, you know, we, we are, we are the only ones who are legitimate. Our side is the only one that can be legitimate. And, mm-hmm. And even when we're in power, we are victims. Right. And that's that and, insurgency that I was talking about. Yeah. And, and the thing is, when Buchanan gave that speech, that wasn't yet part of that. True. But that became part of it mm-hmm. when, when Wild Bill took the White House. Mm-hmm. And then it, it crystallized and, and like metastasized into something even more angry and uglier when Obama took the White House. Oh, hugely. You know, when I was, when I was a teenager, the joke that always used to go around was, you know, uh, liberals are never able to have any fun. Liberals, liberals can never be happy. Now, I got to say, conservatives are never happy. They're always furious. Like... Rage has They're become their ideology. That, yeah, and and that's all there is to it. And mm-hmm. and I think that's that's the biggest takeaway I have here is like hearing hearing those words from Buchanan's speech is like, oh my God, this is when it fucking started. Yep. And Absolutely. that's 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 what I have right cool. now. Well, next time we'll actually get into the Clinton presidency. Um, and either next episode or the following, I'll bring it back around to wrestling because the wrestling kind of serves as bookends for it. Uh, All right. So, uh, okay. So where can we find you on the social media? Uh, on the social media, I am, uh, at EH Blaylock on the Twitter and I'm at Mr. Blaylock on, uh, the Instagram. How about you? I am at Duh Harmony on both the Twitter and the Instagram. Um, and, uh, you can also find me every Friday night in May. Uh, actually, I don't know if this is going to release in, fr- in May, but every Friday night in May, you can find me, um, uh, at twitch.tv forward slash capital puns. Um, but starting in June, we're switching to a Tuesday night, um, at 8 30 PM twitch.tv forward slash capital puns. Um, every Sunday night though, you can find me at 8 30 uh, at twitch.tv forward slash calling it in the ring where we talk a lot about wrestling. So those are the places you can find me. Uh, so, uh, for, uh, a, Oh, and you can also find us at where, uh, geek history time on, at geek history time on the Twitter. Yeah. So, uh, for geek history of time, I'm Damien Harmony 
And I'm Ed Blaylock. And until next time, keep rolling 20s.